Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm delighted to have the author, multiple times entrepreneur, and responsible for many startups that have gone into multi-million dollar businesses. Scott, would you mind giving a quick 30-second introduction to who you are and your journey so far? Sure thing, Marcus. Thanks for having me on the show. I've been a head of sales six times, five of those companies. I successfully got to north of $20 million in two to three years. And I've spent my whole career building and scaling early stage startup organizations, sales organizations in, in, the, in the startups. And um, been running my own sales consulting business now for a few years. Also run a company called Surf and Sales, run a podcast the Surf and Sales podcast, run a community called Thursday Night Sales, and I'm a strategic advisor to roughly a dozen companies all around the world, as well as do private sales and leadership coaching on top of that. And you mentioned my, my book, Addicted to the Process, came out a couple of years ago, and I just finished my second book, and I'm, I'm hoping to get it squeezed out before the year is, uh, year is through here. What's that about? It's actually about the life of a VP of sales, the good, oh. the bad, the ugly, the dirty, all of this kind of stuff. I felt like it's a, a kind of an underserved market and, and not talked about too much. And I've done it so many times. I, I felt like it'd be a good story to tell. Well, let's have you back when that's out. That would be great. That'd be great. Fabulous. Okay. So um, your story is really very interesting. Would you mind giving people a story how you came up with your sales methodology? and uh, what it's based upon. Yeah, so my, my sales methodology is, is called the addiction model. And it's all about finding pain, building value, creating urgency, and then and only then discussing your product and, and your solution. And that is married to the recovery process. Long story short, right before my 23rd birthday, I got extremely sick, ended up with multiple autoimmune diseases, and spent four years in the hospital battling these diseases, and it progressed into colon cancer, and I had a total colectomy. I have no large intestine. I've had nine surgeries, four life-saving surgeries, two emergency surgeries. And through that whole bout, I got addicted to opioids because I was taking morphine and oxycodone and everything you can think of for the pain. And so I was 27 years old by the time I was healthy and had kicked off drugs and you know, able to go out into the workforce. And I'd never had a job before ever. And so I, I picked sales because I'd been an athlete in my previous life. I played soccer and tennis in college for four years. And I thought, well, sales is competitive. The harder I work, the better I do, the more money I'll make. And I can kind of make up for lost time in my career by going into, into sales. But I had no training this is well, this is almost 20 years ago. So, you know, no LinkedIn, no communities sharing, you know, advice and tips, no podcasts like this, <laughs> nothing. Right. And so I, I just kind of naturally found this way to sell where I got people to admit to me they had a problem. And then I'd educate them on why they should care about this problem and then talk to them about why they should do something about, about it sooner rather than later. And only then would I start talking about my product and my solution. And over time in my, in my career and, and leadership style and my coachings, it became this addiction model of, of selling. And I don't think there's anything out there like it. I've been, I've been told that it's unique. It's very, very simple. And, uh, you know, let's, let's be honest, like a lot of people in sales didn't 
end up here through, you know, university and like the normal path. There's a lot of us have had fucked up lives and gone through a lot of things. And so I, I think there's some aspect of salespeople that are a bit of, bit of degenerates and you know, been through some things. And so I think that a recovery and addiction model resonates with a lot of folks <laughs> in our industry. So you describe sales as the garbage can of jobs and it, it absolutely is for many. It's the place that you end up with when you dust around at school or you couldn't think of what you wanted to do. You never quite engage. You might be dyslexic. And it's a melting pot of a lot of people who kind of drifted into it and it, they became salespeople by accident. And it's the highest and the lowest paid job on the planet. I know people who've been, you know, they're still paying off a jar of instant coffee they bought in Safeway in 1986 because they're living hand to mouth. So tell me this. I firmly believe sales is a noble profession if it's done right. And too often it isn't. Why is it that sales is treated within so many companies as being this uh, sort of dark art full of chances, partly because some of us are, but why is it that we're marginalized to a large extent when nothing happens and no wages get paid without salespeople selling stuff? I think a lot of it is legacy. You know, it goes back to, you know, here in the States, probably like the the 80s and 70s, where it's like this Wall Street, money hungry, power grab and dirty, sleazy car salesmen and, and that type of thing. I think there's some elitism. You know, I think I think people who have gone through university and have a master's degree and MBA and they're engineers and they know how to code. I mean, look, we're not the smartest people in the world, right? And so there's elitism at the top that looks down on us like workers who are are selling and just you know using our personality and whatnot. And they think, well, we these guys don't have any skills, right? So they're replaceable. They're coin operated. Let's throw money at them. If they can't sell, fuck them, throw them away. We'll bring in somebody new. If they do well, great. You know, we'll pay them. And I, I hope that that's starting to change. I feel like it is a little bit. We're starting to apply a lot more science into the world of sales. Data is being utilized a lot more. Some of the dark arts, as you put it, is being codified and, and put into, you know, sales playbooks and and scripts and repeatable processes and things like that. Um, but I think a lot of this mentality is, is carryover from, you know, how things used to be. And I'm, I'm hopeful that we're emerging from the medieval period of sales, maybe into, you know, more of a Renaissance period. <laughs> Over the years, I mean, I've been selling now 35, 36 years. And what I've realized is that selling is a science more than an art. It's 90% process. If you have good systems and good processes and you are a creature of good habits and you apply them consistently, you can predict the results that you're going to get. You can't necessarily always predict at the beginning which ones are going to land. But uh, without process, you are essentially just winging it and you're dead in the water. So let's start with your views on salespeople who wing it? They're not going to be around for very long, right? And that doesn't necessarily mean they won't have a long career in sales. What it just means is they will be those career salespeople that you see who have one to two year stints at 30 companies over the course of their career. 
because they, they don't do anything consistently enough to stick. And a lot of sales orgs and products, it takes you 12 months to really like understand an industry, build up massive pipeline and like kind of quote unquote master something. That's if you are following a process and, and a repeatable kind of methodology. And so those people who aren't, they're in big trouble, you know, and I think this global pandemic and coronavirus and all this is like, it's massively exposed mediocrity. Mediocre salespeople are in big trouble. They're going, losing their jobs left and right. Mediocre sales organizations are the ones that are laying everybody off. Mediocre sales departments are the ones who are struggling to bring in revenue that are doing 30% of what they used to do with some exceptions, right? I mean, of course, there's certain industries that have just been crushed. But I, I work with a lot of clients who are in industries that are doing quite well right now. But there's reps inside of those teams who are doing terrible. And these are the ones who you know try to do things their own way. They do things different than everybody else. They don't pay attention to what's been working or what's worked previously. They're in big trouble. And, and I just don't think that you're ever going to be able to be super successful without putting it down on paper and repeating this process and this methodology, whatever your process and methodology is. So let's start at the top, sales management. In my experience, there are very few great sales managers. In fact, there are very few good sales managers because a lot of them have been tapped on the shoulder and told, Scott, your idiot boss has just been fired. Congratulations, you're now the manager. That's their runway. And why is it still, despite the fact that we know that coaching massively improves team performance? The, the stats on this are, if you coach your reps for three to three and a half hours a month, average team attainment is 105% a quota. If you don't, it's 40 to 60%. Why is it that managers are being given so little runway and so little training, and they don't really understand how to manage the sales department and sales team? Well, this is, uh, I mean, if you're looking, if you're watching this at home, you can see my Liverpool scarf behind me. No it's only going out on audio, but for anyone who's uh, listening, he's going to behind yeah. It's no different than football, yeah. right? Look at all the managers and, and, and coaches in football in, in the UK, right? American football, basketball, every, every sport that you can think of. The first person to get sacked is the manager. And where are all the good managers? Where are all the good coaches? There's not that many. You stick a manager like Klopp into an organization like Liverpool that has some good young talent, and all of a sudden, boom, a championship arrives for the first time in 30 years. How much of that is, is Klopp? A good deal. You look at the NBA, you look at, you know, we just had this whole series here about the last dance and the Chicago Bulls teams with Michael Jordan in the 90s and whatnot. So much of that has to do with Phil Jackson and what he was able to do with, with coaching people. So where do those people come from? First of all, there's not many of them. I completely agree with you, but we don't do much to develop them, you know, and that, it's difficult for me to fully blame a sales manager. I want to place a lot of the blame on the VP of sales. That's and, then I want to place, and then I want to place even more blame on the founders and CEOs. Because founders and CEOs don't spend any time coaching their VPs of sales. First of all, most of them don't know shit about selling, right? Which is, which is a whole nother, you know, can, can of worms. 
they don't know. So they don't know how to coach you and guide you. And, and a lot of them in the startup world are 22 year old, 24 year old kids who've never had a fucking job before. So yeah. they can't really tell you much about business or management or leadership or any of these things. So the VP of sales is not getting coached. So the VP of sales, how are they going to coach the sales manager? Especially if you're a new VP of sales, right? Well, one of the things that the VP hasn't done is they haven't codified their process. They've put a process in place for sales reps to follow, but not for sales management. And if you don't spend the time coaching the sales managers and you don't put a process in place for them, you're going to get shit results the same way you would with the, with the sales rep. So it's just about where our focus and time and energy and effort have been. And it's just not been in the right place. Can you imagine a finance department or a manufacturing floor that operated on the same basis that most sales teams did? No. <laughs> I mean, if on the manufacturing side, I'm imagining disasters left and right in the plant. Yeah. Absolutely. If they only got one in, three, uh, one in seven invoices right. You know, it's a recipe for disaster. So I, you know, if you're listening to this, for God's sake, pay attention, Okay. Invest in your senior leadership team, learning how to coach your middle management layer and train them to coach your, uh, your salespeople and have your salespeople mentor and train your junior people so they learn the skills so you start developing the next generation of managers. You've got to bake coaching and training into the fabric of your organization and, and culture. Right? It just Absolutely. has to become a part of the daily kind of best practices and rituals that, that go on where you're at. Which therefore suggests that actually it should be a KPI for managers and for the salespeople to make sure that not only are they attending and participating in the coaching, but then they're taking action off the back of it. It 100% should be, Marcus. And in fact, in my organizations, it is. I tracked all the time. Marcus went to 14 trainings this month. Scott led four trainings is all. And managers had quota of how many original trainings they had to do, how many trainings they had to sit in. Reps had quota, if you will, for how many trainings that they should attend based on their performance and tenure and all that kind of stuff. We tracked all that stuff. At the beginning of every month, excuse me, at the end of every month, I would model out with my sales management team every single day of the next month upcoming and what we were going to train on. At one organization, I had three optional trainings a day, before work, at lunch, and after work. And we had the topics listed and which manager or myself who was going to hold them, and people would sign up and attend. So you, if you wanted to, you could get 15 hours a week, 60 hours a month of additional, supplementary, not, not during the normal work hours, supplementary training on sales, leadership, goal setting, motivation, all the things that go into our, our jobs at my sales organizations, and I track it. And so people come to me and be like, oh, you know, I didn't do very good this month. And I missed my quota, whatever. I'm like, well, well, let's look at your numbers. And not just dials and demos. I'd be like, how many? You went to two trainings out of fucking 60. <laughs> what do you want? You want leniency from me? You want support? Like, you didn't care. You didn't invest. You didn't do anything. Well, this then brings me very helpful to have data. This then brings me to the next point. Who is responsible for a salesperson's development? I think it's 50-50. I I think half of it has to come from the salesperson themselves. There's got to be some layer of 
intrinsic motivation. And the other 50% has to come from the, the management team or the direct, direct manager with some help from the rest of the management team, I think. And if you're in a company where management doesn't invest in training? Well, then you have no excuse anymore not to go get training and help and support and coaching somewhere else. There has never been an easier time in history for you to network with somebody all across the world and get private coaching. You can either pay for private coaching, you can get free advice all over the place. Look, there's, you know, there's 900 free sales training and webinars during the last four months every single day during COVID, right? You should have been participating in all this stuff. There's God knows how many podcasts like this one that offer value every single day or every single week. There's so many books that you can be reading. Look, you could shoot me a message out of the blue if you're living in Liverpool right now. And I'd never meet you, but you shoot me a message on LinkedIn. You say, hey, Scott, heard your you know, conversation with Marcus, had a question for you. I respond to that. I respond to every single person who messages me. And I have a big network on, on LinkedIn. So there's no excuse. Is it disappointing you're not getting coached where you're at? Yes. Are you in not the best situation? Yes, I agree. You're not in the best situation. You're not getting the support that you need. Is that an excuse to sit on your hands and do nothing about it? Absolutely not. I'm going to build on that. I believe fundamentally that if you have come out of COVID, assuming it does, uh, the lockdown actually sticks, and you are not stronger coming out of it than when you came into it, you're an idiot. You've done yourself a monstrous disservice. And if your company has not used this time downtime, the time that's been freed up by not being stuck in fucking meetings and traveling and being stuck in airports and terminals and airplanes, and they haven't used that time to train you, then shame on you and shame on them. Yeah, I mean, there's, this has been talked about a bunch in the last couple of months, at least in my circles, but now is the time, my friend Morgan Ingram said, binge growth, not Netflix. And what he means is like now is the time more than ever where you could be working on yourself and your skills and your personal development and your personal growth instead of your 45 minute subway ride to and from work every day. You got an hour and a half back. What can you do with that hour and a half every single day? Well, you can listen to podcasts while you go on a run or go on a walk with the dogs or whatever. You can spend some downtime and read a book. You can listen to more calls of yours. You can network with people all across the, you know, the globe and get some, some advice. So I completely agree with you. You know, it's a real shame if people are out there squandering this opportunity right now. And it is an opportunity. And it is an opportunity. I mean, look, yes, the world is like fucked right now. Right. But I'm not trying to diminish that at all, but like, look, I, I've been through hell. I spent four years in the hospital bed. Okay. Not breathing fresh air. So you think three or four months trapped inside my comfortable house with Wi-Fi and food and my health, you think that's hard for me by comparison? <laughs> no. So turn, you got to turn every situation that comes your way into some type of positive or some type of opportunity. And there has absolutely been opportunity and still is opportunity for all of us to get better at what we do. Never waste a good crisis. There you go. I um, like that. <laughs> So my, my next question is this, when you're recruiting, in fact, I'll come to that one in a second, training for veterans, often 
you hear the refrain, well, you know, we've got veterans, they don't need training. What's your response to sales lead or business leaders who make that preposterous claim? You use the right word, preposterous, number, number one. I mean, you look, there's a little bit of leeway that I might give. Show me everybody's performance, right? If you've got vets on your team and everybody's, you know, doing 120% to quota every single quarter, you know, year after year, um, then I agree they probably, for the most part, need to be left alone. But one of the things that we fail to do as leaders is train and develop people in other areas beyond just selling. You know how many people I know who have been in sales or sales leadership who have done really well and they've pissed away their money or they've made really poor personal decisions that have damaged their their life? Like, why don't we train people on personal finances? I've brought in financial planners to, you know, train my team, real estate agents and, and investors insurance agents and investors. How many of your people understand their stock option package? Almost nobody. How many people know why life insurance is important? Almost nobody. How many people out there are making $200,000 a year, right? And they're spending 50% or more of their paycheck on rent or on their mortgage. That's not the wisest thing to do. So don't tell me that your vets and top producers have nothing left to learn in life, let alone in the sales environment. There are plenty of things that I could talk to the team about and figure out what are they interested in? What are their needs right now? And I promise you, we can find something to level them up just a little bit. And better people sell better. So why not work on our people and reap the rewards of them selling a little better? I think that's incredibly enlightened advice. So. Back to my question around recruitment. What are you looking for in new salespeople? What are the qualities that you're looking for? I'm looking for people who are hungry and eager to, to learn and develop. This usually coincides with people who are humble and coachable, you know, and looking for advice and guidance and, and mentorship. I look for people who are competitive. I look for people who are creative. If I break it down to its most basic component, my job is not to try to help somebody figure out what they want to do with their life. My job is to take the people who know what they want to do with their life and help them get there. And so that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for those people coming into the field who are like, look, I want to be, I want to start my own business one day and I want to use this job to learn sales skills, learn, build leadership skills and whatnot. I want to work at this company because I like the industry. I like the product and you've been a a leader. I've read your book and posts and whatnot. Like I want to learn from you. Those type of folks are the people that we're, we're looking for in junior kind of entry level salespeople right now. And what about their habits? Well, I personally am looking for people who have other things going on and other hobbies and interests. I have no problem with people who have side hustles. I had multiple side hustles until my side hustles started making more money than my regular job. And so I quit my regular job and now all my side hustles are my main job. So I want people on my team who, you know, 
are doing some some creative things. They're writing or they have their own podcast or they, you know, are a real estate investor on the side or whatever they do on the side. I like people who are entrepreneurial. So I like those type of habits, right? These are growth habits. These are learning habits. I'm not interested in people who are are like, oh, I wake up at 4 a.m. every day and do all this and, and then you know I go to bed at 11 p.m. after I'm exhausted. Like those things don't impress me. I want to know what people do with their off time and how does it enrich their personal life and how does it enrich their professional life. Those are the type of people that I want to work with and I want to be around and I feel like I can impact. Very interesting. And I noticed, thankfully, you didn't at any point mention historical experience. Oh, yeah, I could care less. <laughs> I'd never look at that stuff, to be honest with you. I, I care almost not about who somebody was. I care about who you are right now. Who's this person in front of me? And where are you looking to go? That's what I'm trying to measure. It's not easy. I'm not trying to make it sound like it's easy. It's, it's not easy, but that's what I'm looking for. And what's your success rate in terms of making successful hires? If you brought 10 in, how many would you realistically, based on your track record, expect to be good hires? Some of this is, is sort of stage dependent, right? Meaning if you and I started a brand new company today, Marcus, and we're just trying to bring it to market and I hire 10 people, I'm probably expecting five of them not to work out two or three to be really good and two or three to be okay. Now, if we've been around for two years and I've got this process that is proven to work and I've got, you know, good sales operations, good sales tools, good sales management, good sales training and onboarding, right? Then I, I think it inches up closer to like seven out of 10 that will stick and be, you know, good, good producers. Anybody who tells you they've got the hiring process nailed is completely fucking lying to you, right? If any sales leader can hire 10 out of 10, they wouldn't be a sales leader anymore. They would be running like the single largest, most wealthy recruiting firm of all time. They'd be worth like a trillion dollars because nobody has figured it out. Nobody. I don't, I don't care how good of an inter- interviewer you are. You never quite can tell. I, I once went for an interview roughly 20 years ago, Marcus. And it was for a, a, a HR payroll services firm that's really big here in, in the States called ADP. I don't even know if they are yeah, global. No, they're over here as well. Yeah, okay, fair enough. So a, ADP, this is like the one, the second interview I'd ever had for sales. And I had already been working and doing quite well at this one company. It was my first job. And I went for an interview because a friend of mine had referred me in and said, oh, you should you know, check this out. And the, the guy at the end of the interview who was interviewing me said, you know, I just don't see it. I don't see you as a salesperson. You're too quiet, too reserved, too passive. Like maybe you're a, kind of a silent killer. I don't know. But, uh, you know, it's not going to work out. I mean, maybe he felt that way. And maybe that was, you know, the proper choice for him in that moment. But in hindsight, it looks to me like it fucking backfired in big time. Like he got that one wrong, right? Like I've done, I've done okay. And I've, I've said no to certain people who've gone elsewhere and done pretty good as well. The, the point is like, nobody is getting it exactly right. You do the best you can 
to look for certain things and certain qualities. And you're going to, you know, you're you're only going to get 50 to 75% accuracy, very different than hiring for a finance role or an engineering role. So he's like the guy who, from Decca Records, who didn't sign the Beatles. There you go. <laughs> that poor guy. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me this. You've started up several businesses. What plans do you have to have in place when you're building a startup to ensure that the wheels don't come off? Well, I could take that, that question and go a lot of different ways. I mean, first and foremost, it starts with a good quality product that is, is a need to have rather than a nice to have. That's the foundation. I, I've worked for a couple of gigs early in my career that were nice to have products. Yes, it would help the buyer and help, it would help them grow their business. Could they run their business without it? Yes, absolutely they could. That's an error, mistake, and judgment on my part because I could have gone to companies that could have been even bigger. Like I grew some of these companies and we just kind of peaked. As I learned more, I realized, no, the smart ones work with products and companies where the product is a must-have. Like you can't run your business without X, right? Like you can't run your business without a platform like Salesforce, right? It's everywhere. So it starts with having a good product. And so many salespeople, I think, don't vet that properly. And then they get in these sales jobs where they're asked to turn water into wine sometimes. Like, look, man, I'm, I'm, I'm following your script. I'm trying to sell this particular product, but like the market doesn't want the product. And then, you know, the salespeople get fired and it's this vicious kind of, kind of cycle. So, if, you know, spend the time in advance of building something to really research the industry and the needs of your potential clients and assess, is this a must-have or a nice-to-have? And you've seen budgets get slashed everywhere over the last four or five months. And all those nice-to-have products, that churn is like, through the roof. And all the must-have products, they've stayed steady, right? That's the best piece of advice that I think that I can give when you're, when you're either looking to build or looking to evaluate really early stage kind of companies. My pal Tony Groom is a turnaround specialist. And what he says, and I have to agree with him, is it needs to be a simple business. So don't introduce needless complexity and complication. Make sure it's cash flow positive and debt free. And I think as we go into this depression, I mean, in the UK, we're looking at a 20% drop in GDP. In 2010, we had a 3% drop in GDP. So if you are not prepared because you haven't done the training during this lockdown, okay, you've got about 60 days before the shit really hits the fan. And it's today, the 8th of July. Make sure that you are as free of debt as humanly possible. So this then brings me to the next question. The businesses that you were involved in, did you bring in any investors, VC? Yeah, I mean, all five of the six that I was a VP of sales, head of sales, whatever you want to call it, um, did VC money and a lot of it. So I'm not disagreeing with your, with your friend, but it's a completely different model. Like cash flow positive businesses in, in VC are very, very rare. And it's not even part of the goal for the first five or six years at all. 
candidly. It's not. But in my own businesses, which I've now been running for a few years, totally different. I've taken no, no venture money, no investments whatsoever. Massively cash flow positive, right? Like my surfing sales business. I run these mini sales conferences. I call them micro sales conferences. And I take 20 people a couple times a year to places like Costa Rica, Nicaragua, Mexico, things like that. And, and we kind of combine a week's worth of sales and management and leadership training with a little bit of a vacation. I rent three houses on the water. We give surf lessons to everybody. We do zip lining and you know, eat lo- local food and drink on the house and all this kind of stuff, right? It costs me about $25,000 to put this thing on. I net, or excuse me, I gross about 100K to run it. And I have two partners that I split with. So we come out way ahead every time we do it. So your friend has a, a great point, like eliminate debt right now in your business. I'd also argue if you have the ability to eliminate debt in your personal life right now and downsize your expenditures right now. Now is probably not the time to go buy a $8 million house and have to pay 50000 you know, pounds every single month, right? Just to, just to make the, the mortgage payment. Like not, a, not the best idea right now with how things are, are heading. So, you know, I, I try to be very cash conscious and, and conservative in my, in my businesses and in my personal life, you know, live well below my means. Don't make out loud, outlandish purchases. You know, I, I drive a Prius and a Toyota, you know, hybrid. Like I can't even stomach spending more than 40 grand on a car, right? Mm-hmm. So these things, in my opinion, safeguard me a little bit through some of these turbulent times, right? And I don't have only one business going on. I have, I will get paid through 17 different streams of revenue this month, for example. That's diversification. So if any one of them tanks, I'm still okay, right? I think of it in terms of that way, sort of protecting your business. And if you don't own a business, protecting yourself. And on that note, learning to run your personal finances is absolutely critical. We don't get trained on it. Did you get trained on that in school? No, and absolutely should. I think yeah. the, two, the, the three things that we should be taught at school, personal finance, listening, and questioning. And mm-hmm. none of that stuff really gets taught. It's a travesty. You know, these are life skills. You could argue that listening and communication is foundational to sales, and sales even now, is really not taught in university. I think in, here in the States, there's like 60 universities that have some type of certification or program that is sales-related. Yeah. That's it, 60. When, when, when I was going to, to, to school in the, in the late 90s, there's no, not one course on sales if you were getting a business degree whatsoever, none. They teach marketing and finance, and they don't teach people, and they don't teach selling. And yep. it's crazy because your business depends on sales and without people, it doesn't exist unless it's an e-commerce business. I mean, almost every profession you can think of is selling to some degree, yeah. right? If you're a healthcare professional, you're selling your patient on making lifestyle changes to make them healthier. If you're a teacher, you're trying to control a classroom of 25 to 30 kids. You're selling them every single day to you know pay attention, study up, if you're a parent, I have two boys, 12 and 10 years old. 
I promise you, I'm fucking selling against them all day, every day, dealing with 9,000 objections every day. You can't escape it. We're all selling one way or the other. Well, th this then brings me to the subject of compensation. Compensation drives behavior. A traditional Chinese doctor gets paid when you are well. And when you're sick, they have to pay for your treatment. Now, one of the things that really fascinates me is how compensation models have often got unintended consequences and they drive the wrong behaviors. So when you're putting comp plans together in your teams, what are the areas that you focus their attention on so that the, the, it drives the right behaviors? So number one, I would say the focus has simply got to be on revenue or new deals, you know, brought in and booked. Because at the end of the day, that's what matters, all right? There's too many comp plans that are complicated and dependent upon, you know, how many dials you made or your attendance at work, for God's sakes, all of these weird things that I've seen over the course of 20, 20 plus years, right? It's got to be that. What really is going to make the business thrive is the stickiness of your customer. So I really incentivize bringing on the right type of customer, right? And so you build in measures that protect against like quick cancels, for example. You reward salespeople, not just service people, when somebody renews. That doesn't happen often enough. I care a lot about retaining my best people and my, my top performers. One of the things that has always drove me nuts in my roles, as well as being an individual contributor, is salespeople really can never take vacation. You can take vacation, sure, but like your pipeline suffers because of it, right? So we always have this fear, like, oh, I want to go on a two-week holiday to the Caribbean or whatever. Like, okay, well, you can do that, but your July is probably fucked. And because you missed that two-week period, your August is probably going to be difficult as well. So one of the things that I used to do is I used to build in quota relief. So as long as you gave me enough advance notice, let's say Marcus was like, okay, you know, in September, I'm going to take the first two weeks off. I would lower your quota in September to 50% since you're only going to be there half the time, but I'd pay you the same amount. So if you did 50% of your quota, I'd pay you as if you're hundred percent. So your sales team loves that kind of stuff. Because they, they live it. They know that that's fact and, and that's reality. So things like that, you know, we got to get a little creative with. with we got to focus on what matters. What matters is revenue. What matters is retention of clients. And what matters is retention of our top people. Those are the things that I, you know, really try to focus on and build in triggers uh, into the comp plan, you know, to support. Absolutely. I love the idea of quota relief. I think that's brilliant. What about account penetration? Well, for SDRs, I, I think that that could be, you know, something to take a look at. I would err, though, on the side of account coverage being something we look at and measure and track, but I'm not sure that I would compensate on account coverage, certainly not on an AE level, perhaps on an on a SDR level I would. But for me, that's something that I want to know, I want to measure, but I don't think I'm comping people on that. Okay. I mean, the cost of acquiring a new customer versus selling to an existing is anywhere between six to 21 times in terms of the hidden cost of sale. So the challenge there, because you know, all businesses actually run on their profit. 
So what you keep matters more than what you make. Well, we might, we might be talking about account coverage differently. I'm thinking of account coverage in terms of, I have a universe of 2,000 potential accounts that, that I can call into, right? Yeah. And what, what, how I measure account coverage for an AE is, how many of those 2,000 have we reached out to and made contact with and we're engaged with? So if an AE has only prospected to 1,000, they only have 50% account coverage. That's not a very good job. I'm looking for salespeople who have touched as close to 2,000 accounts as possible. So 100% of their accounts are in process. It sounds like you're talking more about like post-original sale. What are we doing to upsell and cross-sell these people and retain them? And are we compensating on those things? If, if you're talking about the latter, I completely agree with you. Yeah. We should be comped on, on, on all of those things for sure. But I, I, my definition of account coverage is a little different maybe than, okay. than what I'm hearing from you. So the, the, what you're talking about is making sure that you're prospecting to your total addressable market. That's and, correct. Right, okay. And not, and not ignoring some, right? Okay. And what about prioritizing? Because not all prospects are made equal. I think in the early days, <clears throat> you really need to do some time to figure out what your ICP is. You know, making sure we're selling to our ideal customer profile is absolutely critical. And as you start to grow and add more customers, there is a unique binding thread if you analyze all the closed one deals, right? It's like, okay, they have this many teams, their team size is this, their revenue is this on average, their geography is this, right? Like we've got 50 clients and 42 of them are in the UK. Okay, well, our ICP is starting to look like the UK, right? So we should prioritize based on our, our ICP. One of the things that I see startups do wrong, in my opinion, is they swing from the, for the fence right out of the gate. They go after the largest accounts you can think of Absolutely. straight away. And I don't believe in doing that. I believe in starting at the lower end of the market and iterating on and improving my sales process, my onboarding process, debugging the product, getting our customer service processes tightened up, aligning our marketing messaging, right? and building case studies and testing, building all these things that make it easier for us to go into the larger account. We also build momentum. You know what kills an early stage sales organization? Nobody closing a fucking deal. <laughs> and if you only swing for the fence and you've got these 12 to 18 month sales cycle deals going on and that's all you do, where's the reward? Yeah. Where's the payoff? There's yeah. nothing there. The whole company is sitting around wondering, does this product even work? Is this sellable? Right? So I like to start from the smaller end and build up. And by the time I attack the higher end, I've got a lot of social proof and a lot of data and very, very well-refined processes that I think give me a, a better odds to succeed on the higher end. And the lesson here is slow down to speed up. Don't rush. Don't punch above your weight until you're ready to move. So start out hunting squirrels, then rabbits, then deer, then bear, then get your elephants, then your whales, and do it in a steady stage process. But you need to have a plan and a process, and you need to know what the triggers are that allow you to move to the next level. I love the, uh, I love the animal analogy. I need, I'm going to go back and listen to this recording, and I'm, I'm going to change some of the stages in my, in my own Salesforce instance <laughs> to, to reflect these like 
animal that you talked about, squirrel to bear to whale. Everybody knows what a whale is, but the other ones, that was awesome. You can start giving out cuddly toys each time they address. <laughs> That's right. Scott, we're coming to the top of our time. Tell me this. You've got a golden ticket, and you can go back and whisper in the idiot Scott's ear. I won't say 23 because you're in hospital. Let's say 30, and you can whisper in his ear. What choice bit of advice would you give him to avoid a lifetime of uh, idiocy and self-sabotage? Yeah, that's a great question, and, and I appreciate you changing my age in it. <laughs> it's more appropriate for me. Oh, man, I've touched on it a little bit, but like picking a product that is more of a must-have. I didn't do that early enough. And so, yeah, I was able to take a, a bunch of companies to like, 250, 300 million dollar valuations, but that was the ceiling. And later on in my career, you know, my my last venture where I worked full time is a company called Qualia. That's a, a real estate platform. And by the time I had left after three years, we were already worth almost 600 million dollars, and we just landed on this billion dollar unicorn list. And if I if I could apply, you know, what I knew at 38. 40 years old to what I was doing at 30, I think I would have swung for the fence a little bit better. If I'm going to kill myself for a couple of years trying to grow this company, I might as well do it for the potential largest payoff. And I might as well try to bet on the right horse rather than just like, oh, cool, I have a horse, I'm going to ride it. No, <laughs> not every horse is built, you know, equally. So I think, I think that's, that's probably the most powerful thing that I would take back with me uh, about so 13. Pick, take your time, do your research and pick the right horse to ride. It's a lot easier to sell and, and, and the rewards will be a lot bigger. Have you ever been blindsided? Oh God, yeah. I did a horrible, I have one blip on my resume. It was the third job that I went for, would have been my third VP of sales job. And uh, I did a terrible job betting the the company, vetting the product, vetting the founder, vetting the fundraising and financial situation. And uh, I think it was blind arrogance on my part. I think I had come from these places where I, I didn't have many resources or tools. And, you know, they were very nice to have kind of products and I had done quite well. And so I think my arrogance was like, well, I can fucking, I can do anything. Yeah. I can make anything work. So I don't even care what this company is all about. They're offering to pay me this. I'm going to go for it. It was a disaster. You know, I think I was only there seven, maybe eight months. Didn't ship the product when we would try to close. It was just absolute shit. How soon in did you realize you'd fucked up? About a month or two. I mean, in hindsight, I probably should have left even quicker. But, you know, there's a little bit of stubbornness, a little bit of pride and a little bit of like, well, there's got to be a way here somehow to, to kind of make this work. But there wasn't. So blindside to me, yeah, I didn't see that coming. Two uh, lessons from that. Trust your gut and don't get out too early and don't leave, uh, hang on too long. Yeah. Very useful um, lessons that I've learned the hard way. Okay, what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? Professionally speaking, I am personally wrestling with, my hands are in a lot of different cookie jars. And I have found a way now in my life and my career to monetize all these different things. But I'm trying to make sure that I'm putting forth the most effort to the things that bring me the most return. 
And that might sound quite obvious, but sometimes the things that bring the most return are not necessarily the most exciting or the most new and shiny. And so I, I can get distracted at times by some new shiny you know, revenue stream or toy or whatever. And then I pause and I'm like, well, you know, put in these couple hours here and it yielded me X. Like I could have put those couple hours into this other thing and it would yield me Y, which is way bigger, right? So I struggle with that a little bit. And, um, you know, I'm still learning how to say no to things. I, I, I don't do well with idle hands. Like I've got to be busy. I've got to be moving. I've got to be doing stuff. My wife teases me that I have two speeds, full on, full speed ahead and complete dead stop. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to learn how to live in the middle a little bit and say <laughs> no to certain things and not try to do everything. So, you know, these are... I'm 43. I just turned 43 like 10 days ago. I'm still trying to learn this shit. Still trying to figure it out. So how can people get hold of you? Um, LinkedIn is one real easy way. It's a bit crowded. I've, I've got like over 52,000 followers on, on LinkedIn, but I, I do try to respond to everybody who reaches out to me. I run my own Patreon community. It's a much smaller platform easier to get personalized with me. You can check me out on there. I, I put a lot of content there that I don't produce on, on LinkedIn. And then check out my website, scottleesconsulting.com. If you're an early stage business looking for help and check out surfandsales.com if you're looking for, well, at some point, we'll hopefully be able to go back to in-person kind of conferences. But the idea of going to a beautiful location like Costa Rica with 15 or 20 like-minded professionals instead of Wembley with a hundred thousand people and vendors everywhere for your conference, you might be interested in surfing sales. So, so give it a look. <laughs> I suspect I'll have to look out for whaling ships. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Crocodile. I got saltwater crocodiles in certain parts of Costa Rica. Uh, well, I, I'll, I'll make a very fine repast for them. <laughs> Excellent. Scott Lee, thank you so much. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I very much look forward to having you back when you produce your book on the life and loves of a VP of sales. I look forward to it. Thanks a lot, Marcus. I appreciate your time. It's a pleasure. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation with me and Scott, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you think you'd be a good guest on the podcast, then please email me at marcuskauke at me.com or mkauke at sandler.com. And in the meantime, stay safe. Happy selling. Bye-bye.